Welcome to About Scripture, a podcast designed to take the listener deeper into Scripture and biblical thought. I'm Ed Gallagher, Professor of Christian Scripture at Heritage Christian University. I hope to cover a variety of topics with you about Scripture. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Heritage Christian University, where we help students to thrive in ministry. To find out more, go to hcu.edu. We're also partnering with the Ministry League Network. They have free resources to help the local church all over the world. Download the app in the iOS or Play Store, or check out the website at ministryleague.com. And now, welcome to the podcast. Let's talk about the pagan gods. If there are Elohim in the Bible that are not Yahweh, and some of these Elohim form a divine council, these are things I have argued before, and if nations besides Israel are represented as being governed by gods that are not Yahweh, as the Bible makes fairly clear, Is there a relationship between the Elohim that we've been studying and the pagan gods mentioned in Scripture, Baal, Asherah, etc., etc.? Well, listen to the 13th century Jewish scholar named Nachmanides. This is what he says. He's commenting on Leviticus 18.25. He says, "He, He, God, He has separated us from the rest of the nations over whom He appointed various angels and other gods. And he has given us his land so that he, bless him, would be our God and we would be particularly devoted to his name. So is, what exactly is Nachmanides thinking about? What, how is he per- conceiving of these issues? Well, the issues are actually fairly complex. So let's dig in. Deuteronomy 32 is where we have to start, and we have to start with a textual problem. We're thinking about Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is the traditional Hebrew text of the Bible, of the Old Testament, Masoretic text going back about a thousand years ago. We we have Masoretic manuscripts from about a thousand years ago. Leningrad Codex, for example, dates to 1009 A.D., So that's what this is based on. Your Old Testaments are almost completely translations of the Masoretic text. Okay, so this is the traditional reading. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. Okay. There's the traditional reading. What does it mean? God separated the nations from one another and assigned boundaries to them all. According to the apostle, from his speech on Mars Hill, 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. That's, of course, Acts 17, 26, and 27. These ideas correspond to the division of the nations in Genesis 10, after the flood. Moreover, the passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, says that out of all these nations, Israel belonged to Yahweh. But what does it mean that he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel? The early 20th century scholar Samuel Driver proposed this interpretation. I'm going to quote Driver here. When Jehovah allowed the various nations of the earth gradually to settle themselves in separate localities, he so determined their boundaries as to reserve among them a home for Israel adequate to its numbers. Driver seems to be taking the preposition according to in the sense of with a view to. So I'll, I'll paraphrase. God divided up the nations of the earth and established their boundaries in such a manner that he left a plot of ground sufficient for the full number of the sons of Israel. Right? But the rabbis usually took the verse in a different direction, connecting the number of the sons of Israel to the 70 descendants of Jacob slash Israel who entered Egypt, Genesis 46, 27, and et cetera, et cetera, and to the 70 nations listed in Genesis 10, the table of nations. If you actually go to Genesis 10, count up all the nations, there's 70 of them, 70 nations. Or sometimes they would connect the 12 sons of Israel, 12 sons of Jacob, to the 12 descendants of Canaan that are listed in Genesis 10, verses 15 to 19. So different interpretations of this. What does it mean according to the number of the sons of Israel? But I mentioned earlier a textual difficulty. We have only been looking at the Masoretic text so far. What about the Septuagint? The Septuagint, which is the traditional Greek translation of the Old Testament, reads differently. Not sons of Israel, but according to the number of the sons of God. According to the editor of the critical edition of the Septuagint Deuteronomy, this is John William Weavers, I quote him, what is meant is that the Most High divided up the nations in such a way that each one had a divine protector, sons of God, an angel. Each one gets their own angel, son of God. The idea, a divine protector, something like an angel for each nation, might find support in other writings as well. The apocryphal book of Sirach, that's Ecclesiasticus, in the early 2nd century BC said, this is Sirach 1717, he appointed a ruler for every nation, but Israel is the Lord's own portion. He seems to be thinking Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. 
according to this alternative reading, not the traditional Masoretic text. Though the rabbis were reading a Hebrew Bible that did not contain sons of God in Deuteronomy 32.8, but rather sons of Israel, still they attest the idea that each nation has its own angel. Lewis Ginsburg summarizes rabbinic thought this way. Beside the chastisement of sin and sinners by the confounding of speech, another notable circumstance was connected with the descent of God upon earth. And you remember the Tower of Babel episode when God came down. One of only ten such descents where, where God came down to occur between the creation of the world and the day of judgment. It was on this occasion that God and the 70 angels that surround his throne cast lots concerning the various nations. Each angel received a nation, and Israel fell to the lot of God. To every nation, a peculiar language was assigned, Hebrew being reserved for Israel, the language made use of by God at the creation of the world. So this, again, seems to be sort of an interpretation of Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. All the nations get their own son of God, angel, but not Israel. Israel is reserved for Yahweh. Even in the Bible, some verses indicate that there are, as it were, national angels. I bet you've been thinking of this. This evidence comes mostly from the end of the book of Daniel. When an angel comes to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayer, the angel reports, this is Daniel 10, 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Later, the angel explains that he must depart. He says in verse 20, Now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I am through with him, the prince of Greece will come. Here in Daniel, one might, uh, the impression one might get is that the national angels, the princes, of Greece and Persia are opposed to Israel, maybe even opposed to God, certainly opposed to the angel delivering this message to Daniel. Such an interpretation resonates with the pseudepigraphical book of Jubilees from the second century BC. I won't read it just because of time, but Jubilees 15, 31 to 32 also talks about these national angels. So this passage from Jubilees coheres with the common interpretation of Daniel 10, at least to the extent that various nations seem to have national angels or spirits or deities. And some of these national angels are opposing, according to Jubilees, opposing the will of Israel's God or leading people away from him. On the other hand, the translation and interpretation of the crucial, crucial passage in Daniel 10 are not exactly certain, and it has been proposed that the national angels in Daniel 10 are not actually hostile to one another. You might be able to squint and see that interpretation yourself. In any case, the passage does seem to imply national angels. Whether they're hostile to each other or not, it seems to be they've got national angels in Daniel 10. The evidence of the Septuagint in Deuteronomy 32.8 in agreement with this idea of national angels already led several scholars in the 19th and early 20th centuries to posit that the Septuagint reading, sons of God, 
was more original than the reading of the Masoretic text, Sons of Israel, for Deuteronomy 32.8. This supposition was strengthened by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in which a fragment agrees with the Septuagint. So there is a Dead Sea Scroll fragment. The only, in fact, the only part of the Dead Sea Scrolls that preserves Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, says sons of God for that verse, not sons of Israel, as the traditional Hebrew text says. So the original reading of Deuteronomy 32.8 probably meant that God had allotted the various nations of the world to other divine beings. Whether we think of those divine beings as gods or angels, and this is how the text has been understood in Christian circles. We have also seen that the book of Daniel shows familiarity with the notion of national angels. In fact, a, a Christian writer in the 5th century that we call, we don't know his name, we call him Pseudo-Dionysius, used the evidence from Daniel to argue that even Israel was assigned a national angel, namely Michael, and all of these national angels were under the authority of the Lord God, who himself made the assignments. And all of them were tasked with protecting their nation and bringing its people to salvation. Most interpreters, whether modern or ancient, Jewish or Christian, relate Deuteronomy 32.8 to the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis 11, when God dispersed people throughout the earth. The idea of national angels continued to be found in post-biblical Jewish literature. It's in First Enoch, it's in other places. Now let's go to another passage, Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 to 20. We could look elsewhere in Scripture and see that sometimes angels or divine beings are represented as heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars. That there's a connection made there. Now listen to this passage, Deuteronomy 4. Here we don't have a textual problem, so the traditional Masoretic text is fine. And when you look up to the heavens and see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the host of heaven, do not be led astray and bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples everywhere under heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron smelter out of Egypt to become a people of his very own possession as you are now. We could understand the sun, moon, and stars mentioned in Deuteronomy 4.19 as references to the objects created on day four, you know, the actual literal sun, moon, and stars, that give light to people on earth, including Israel. Or we could understand them as a reference to divine beings, which belong to other nations, whereas Israel is Yahweh's special possession. Let me quote Nachmanides again, 13th century Jewish scholar. He said, Above each of these stars is the angel on high who has been given authority over it and thus over its nation. So Nachmanides still links Deuteronomy 4.19 to this issue of the angels. 
It is this second interpretation that has convinced most scholars, though the matter is not easily decided. If we opt for the second interpretation, the verse ends up sounding a lot like Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. Israel is Yahweh's special possession, whereas the other nations are allotted to the sun, the moon, the stars, all the host of heaven. One way of understanding this passage is that Yahweh has placed his lieutenants over the other nations. And so the psalmist says, surely there are Elohim who judge on earth, Psalm 58, 11. The Apostle Paul regularly calls certain angelic beings by the title rulers. And the Greek version of Daniel 10, verse 13, uses that same term, ruler, for the archangel Michael and the prince of Persia. In fact, the, the term prince, prince of Persia, in Greek, archon, ruler. Some early Christians interpreted the verse in this second sense, and I've got this long quotation, uh, long um, interpretation from Eusebius. I'll just read you the first part of it. Eusebius of Caesarea uh, in the fourth century Christian author. He says, but the angel guardians and the shepherds of the other races allowed them to worship things seen in the heavens, the sun, moon, and the stars. Inasmuch as they were not able with their mind to see the invisible, nor to ascend so high through their own weakness. So they worshiped the sun, moon, and the stars. For these, indeed, being the most wonderful of the things of the phenomenal world, invited upward the eyes of those who see, and as near as possible to heaven, being, as it were, in the precincts of the king's court, manifesting the glory of him that is the source of all by the analogy of the vastness and beauty of creating, created visible things. The point Eusebius is making is that the lieutenants, angelic lieutenants, appointed by God over the other nations, invited those, because those other nations were so dull in their spiritual sense, so callous in their spirituality, the, they, there was no way that they were going to worship the one true God. So they lifted their eyes up as far as they could go, which was the sun, moon, and stars, because that's getting closer to God. So this is a positive interpretation Eusebius is making of this. Clearly, he's interpreting Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20 in the sense that the nations are allotted the worship by God, the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. So just to say it again, Eusebius seems to think that even the worship of these heavenly bodies was allotted to the nations by God on the grounds that such worship would lift up their eyes, at least part of the way, to the true God. Other ancient Christians and some modern scholars hold the same view. An example is Origen in the 3rd century AD. The worship of the heavenly bodies was given by God to all the peoples who are under heaven, except to those whom he wished to set aside for himself as his chosen part. Now, the verse, Deuteronomy 4, 19, does not explicitly say that the nations worship the sun, moon, and stars, but it is easy to see 
from the context of the verse why so many interpreters suppose that worship is implied. Unfortunately, Israel was influenced by these other nations. As Deuteronomy 29 verse 26 says, they turned and served other Elohim, worshiping them, Elohim whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted. Whether or not the worship of other gods by other nations was viewed as acceptable or even determined by God in Deuteronomy 4.19. There are other passages in which the God of Israel brings judgment upon the gods of other nations. Uh, there are several verses, Exodus 12 verse 12, Exodus 18 verses 10 and 11, Numbers 33 verses 3 and 4. Or we could even think about what Paul says in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The point being that there are beings, spiritual realities, that Paul calls rulers that are not um, submitting to the authority of God, but are in fact opposed to the authority of God. Perhaps the crucial text in the Old Testament on the theme of judgment against gods is Psalm 82, though the interpretation of the psalm is difficult. I'll just read the first verse and I'll replace the common English words with the Hebrew words with which we have become familiar. Elohim has taken his place in the council of El. In the midst of Elohim, he holds judgment. There is a lot we could say about this psalm. The, I said the interpretation is difficult. What is clear, I think, is that God, our God, Yahweh, is in a council, council of El, divine council, and he is judging other Elohim. He is rendering judgment upon them. Apparently, they have displeased him. If you go on to read the psalm, it's because they have done, they, they have not kept justice. These other Elohim. Now, this is a psalm that is quoted in the New Testament by our Lord. John 10, 34 quotes verse 6. The interpretation of John 10, 34 and how Jesus uses the psalm, what he thinks it means, or at least not what he thinks it means, but, but the way he is using it in his argument within John 10 that is a disputed point, and how it should have bearing on the interpretation of Psalm 82 itself, that's a disputed point that we don't have time to get into. I just pointed out so that you can think about those things. But at any rate, it has been the traditional view that pagan gods have some reality to them that they are not simply invented by people, perhaps as fallen angels. And this might be a way of linking Psalm 82, where, where Yahweh is rendering judgment on divine beings 
maybe we should link it up with this idea of the national angels, they have not fulfilled their task, all of these things. Maybe that's what, where Psalm 82 comes in. But it has been the traditional view that these national, these pagan gods have some sort of a reality to them. Maybe they're uh, fallen angels. This is the view memorialized in Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, I have mentioned Paradise Lost a time or two before. Uh, I, I won't read the passage. It's difficult to understand anyway. But, but Milton describes uh, the moment of Satan's fall. He has had war in heaven, and he now falls from heaven to hell, and he takes his rebel angels with them, and then Milton names the rebel angels, Moloch, Chemosh, Baal, Ashtorot, Astorit, Tammuz, Dagon, Rimon, Osiris, Isis, Oris, Belial, and Saturn, and Jove, and He's naming off all these pagan gods that we know from the Bible and outside the Bible as well. He says these were the rebel angels. These are those who fell with Satan. In the late 2nd century AD, Tertullian tried to convince his readers that the pagan gods were really evil demons, a view that has some resonance with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 19 to 21. The text from Jubilees that I mentioned earlier interprets the spiritual beings over the nations as the pagan gods. One way of trying to hold all this evidence together is to imagine that God placed national angels over each nation and these national angels abused their post, thereby bringing upon themselves the judgment of God and the ire of the biblical authors. These angels became evil, became demons, as we think of them. Though Israel's ancestors had participated in the worship of these pagan gods, Joshua 24, verse 2, the people of Israel had been elected by Yahweh for a covenant relationship, yet Israel often fell into worshiping these same gods, as Deuteronomy 32, verse 17 says. They sacrificed to demons, not to God to Elohim, whom they had not known. Or maybe the pagan gods are not actually the national angels. According to Jean Danielu, the dominant patristic view was that the angelic rulers, angelic national rulers, did not lead the pagan nations astray, but the sinfulness of those nations did, in spite of the angelic national rulers. Pseudo Dionysius, I've already mentioned, insisted that the angels put in charge of the various nations did their job, but the nations freely chose idolatry. Other people make a similar interpretation. There is no single traditional view on the relationship between the national angels of Deuteronomy 32.8 and other places, Daniel, and the pagan gods condemned in Scripture or the gods facing Yahweh's wrath in Psalm 82. But there is a significant tradition found in ancient Jewish literature, early Christian literature, modern scholarly literature, that certain biblical passages, especially Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, envision the God of Israel assigning certain divine beings to oversee nations other than Israel. 
these divine beings were a part of what the Bible calls the divine council, a concept that has illuminating parallels in other ancient Near Eastern literature, especially at Ugarit. The concern that Yahweh shows for other nations by his appointment of divine overseers coheres with other themes in Scripture, such as his condemnation of non-Israelite nations for their failure to uphold justice. Think about the prophecies against the nations in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. These same passages further show that the ultimate authority on earth is the God of Israel, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that other nations, no matter what gods they worship, are in reality subject to Yahweh. Thank you.